All right, we're in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 16. We're moving along. We find ourselves in the first 15 verses together. Uh, as we've been walking through John's Gospel, we've been considering the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. You know, John, he invites us to believe that Jesus is not just a man or a prophet. In chapter 20, verse 31, in light of what we read about, we are to believe or invited to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, that he is Lord, that he is the one who offers eternal life to anyone who will receive forgiveness of sins as they trust in him, believe in him, and and receive that in him. Uh, Jesus, where we find him in chapter 16, he's in the final week of his life. Uh, he's in the, with his disciples for these final hours, and uh, by the time we get to chapter 16, and this is the night before his crucifixion, uh, Jesus is now just with 11 of his disciples. One of them has already departed, that's Judas. Judas has left, and he's gone to betray Jesus. He's going to inform those who will arrest him, where they can find him, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But as Jesus is with those 11, he's no longer ministering to the crowds and the multitudes. He's just ministering to the few. And what he's doing with his disciples is he's preparing them for what lies ahead of them. Not just in the next 24 to 48 hours as he's going to be crucified on a cross after standing trial, after being falsely accused, after being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's preparing them not just for that, but also for not just his resurrection, but also his subsequent ascension, his own departure. See, 40 days after his death and resurrection, Jesus is going to ascend to the Father and his disciples will see him no more. But while Jesus will not be with them physically, he's promised the Holy Spirit will indwell them spiritually. And so as we walk through chapter 16, as Jesus continues to prepare them for what lies ahead, namely his departure, we're going to consider what this tells us about who he is. I mean, as he prepares them, as we ask and answer the question, how does he prepare them for his departure? And, And as we ask and answer the question, what does that tell us about him? So let's go ahead and read the text, and then we'll walk through it together. Chapter 16, verse 1, reads this way. These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues, yes. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and And you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Lord of the Lord. Uh, as we have opportunity to dig through our text, uh, it's interesting to note where Jesus finds himself. He's with his disciples, uh, but he's about to leave them. He's about to depart from them after his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And this weighs heavy on their hearts. But it's interesting to note this, that as he writes these words to prepare them for what lies ahead of them after he departs from them, the very words that are relevant to the disciples are relevant to you and I in the day and age we live in because we're living in the time after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and first departure, and then 
his, and in between waiting for his second return. And so as we consider these words, how they should prepare for his departure, how should we live in light of the words that Jesus gives in regards to these instructions? So how are they to prepare for his departure first? Uh, he encourages them to, by warning them of the adversity to come. Verses one through four, he gives them a warning about the adversity to come. Now, if you were with us last time in chapter 15, beginning in uh, verse, verse uh, 18 to 27, uh, this, these first four verses finishes up that section and, and transitions us into the next section where he promises the Holy Spirit. But as we conclude the last section and introduce the, ne- the, the next section, we find the reasons why he gives these warnings. And the first reason he gives this warning of adversity in verse 1 is in order uh, to strengthen their faith rather than shake their faith. Verse 1 says that these things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. Jesus says, the reason I give you this warning that back in chapter 15, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The reason why I gave you this warning is in order not that you would stumble and fall away from me, but that your faith would be strengthened in light of the warning that I give you. You know, it's interesting to note, if you want to know a good test for your faith and mine, a good test for that are times of adversity. In those times of hardship, those times of difficulty, how much more times of pressures of persecution. If you want to know if your faith is strong or your faith is weak, consider how you respond in times of adversity. When the hardships come, when the adversities come, do you respond with a faith that is strengthened in the Lord or do you respond with a faith that seems to waver and find a faith that is indeed weak? Jesus says, in regards to this warning, I want to strengthen your faith. Even when it comes and the adversities hit and the pressures of persecution come, may this strengthen your faith. May it not cause you to stumble. May it not shake your faith. Secondly, he gives this warning in order to share the extent of the suffering that they will experience. Chapter 15, as we read in verses 18 to 27, told us uh, that for the disciples, it's not if they will suffer persecution, it's when they will suffer persecution. Jesus said, a, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But Jesus wants to prepare them for the extent thereof. And he says, you're going to be ostracized, kicked out of the synagogues. And you're also going to be killed. Now consider who Jesus is talking about. We know church history. Tradition tells us all of the disciples, all of the apostles except for one were martyred for their faith. Potentially, John was the one who was preserved. Who knows in the end what exactly happened? But basically, all of these disciples experience not just some slander here, slander there, or, or, or are talked about this way. or that. They literally experience persecution and their lives are taken from them. And so he, he shares with them the extent of, of their suffering. If you are going to be take, kicked out of the synagogue, you're ultimately ostracized from society. You're ostracized from your family who attends the synagogue. And so it was a difficult thing for these individuals to count the cost of saying, if you're going to follow me in the days ahead after I depart, you're going to be ostracized and then they're going to kill you and they're going to think they're doing me service. They're going to think that they're doing it in my name. Now, this is kind of difficult to listen to because in our day and age, if if you're thinking about 11 disciples who are, liter- are the ones who are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I don't know about you, but this is not a very seeker-sensitive message. <laughs> Can you imagine if you've got 11 with you and you say, I'm about to leave. I'm about to depart for whatever reason. And, and uh, I've, I've equipped you over these past few years. And then you promise them, listen, you're going to be ostracized and you're going to be killed for your faith. That doesn't sound very appealing. Now, on the other hand, if, if you're with me and we're talking and I'm about to leave and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to commission you to go out, well, if I promise you a few things, maybe you're going to follow me. Health? I mean, if you follow me, you're going to have good health. 
If you follow me, you're going to have wealth beyond measure. Just imagine all the wealth of the world. Happiness? You, you want to think about what it means to be happy. Health, wealth, and happiness. If you follow after me, you get all this. Jesus doesn't promise health, wealth, and happiness in this life. He promises suffering. He promises persecution. The reward of the faithful is that of suffering, is that of ostracism, is that of death. So people always ask, well, how do you know Jesus is truly who he claimed to be, that he died and that he rose again? How do you know they just didn't steal his body away? Well, what in the world would motivate these 11 men to literally turn the world upside down for the cause of Christ, be ostracized, be persecuted, and be killed for their faith if it was not for the risen Lord? It makes no sense. But they saw the value of Christ was so much more valuable than the suffering that they would experience in this life. And so they turned the world upside down for Christ. You read it all throughout the book of Acts, and that's what we are called to continue to do, to go out and make disciples literally to the ends of the earth. And it's a reminder to us, not if we will experience persecution, but when we do, may our faith be strengthened and may it not be shaken. Thirdly, he warns them in order to encourage them with his word. It goes on to say in in verse 3, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Verse 4, But these things I have told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. Jesus is like a, a loving father who has a son who's about to leave the home and enter into a new season of life. Let's say he's heading off to college and the father sits down with his son and he has a heart-to-heart with his son and he says, son, there's going to be a new season of life for you. There's going to be exciting things for you. You're living on your own for the first time. You're no longer under your parents' roof and as you go out into the world, you're going to experience new things. But I also want to warn you, son, that there's going to be some trials and temptations that you're going to face along the way. There are going to be adversities and hardships, difficulties. And and so when his son heads off into college and he experiences life without his parents, there are going to be new, exciting experiences. But when the adversities come, when the hardships and difficulties uh, are revealed, in those moments, he'll recall the words of his father and be encouraged that my father warned me about these things and he equipped me for how to endure them when they come. Certainly, he always has access to call his father if ever he should need it. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I'm sending you out. I'm going to leave you. I'm going to commission you. But I want you to, to take these words of warning as words of encouragement to you so that when you're in the face of adversity, you would know that I'm still sovereign, that I still sit on my throne, and there's still an advantage to your adversity and a purpose for your pain, and you can trust me. And so if ever, or not if, but when we should experience those adversities, that we would hold on to the words like these and be encouraged that God is going to see us through them. And then fourthly, he warns them in order to prepare them for his departure. The end of verse four says, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Jesus says, I'm telling you this now, Because this is the moment that I'm about to leave you. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. Then 40 days after the resurrection, I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And you need to be prepared for what lies ahead of you. And so who is Jesus in light of the warning that he gives as he prepares them for his departure? Jesus is the one who, who warns us with the adversity that lies ahead of us. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they'll persecute you If they hated me, they will hate you. Why? Because we're not of this world. We don't adopt the same value system of this world. And when you have a different value system than the world, not only will you experience hostility, but when you stand up for the truth of what you believe, you may also experience persecution as well. And those pressures can intensify. Uh, So what does that look like for us? I'd like to give us a few takeaways. The first one is this. Heed the warning by praying for the persecuted. 
Now, we may not experience persecution to the extent that we read about uh, throughout the book of Acts. We may not experience persecution to the extent that people are experiencing it around the world. It's helpful to read various articles or magazines that keep us up to date about what's going on around the world. And, and so I'd encourage us to, to stay up to date and, and pray for them. And if I could ask this question, how can we strategically pray for the persecuted church around the world, knowing some are being ostracized and even murdered for their faith in Jesus? That by claiming the name of Jesus, their family says, I want nothing to do with you. By claiming the name of Jesus, there is contempt there, and they're literally risking their lives by saying, I denounce this faith, I denounce this religion, I'm willing to follow Jesus no matter what. How can we here pray strategically for them? So praying for the fruit that comes out of persecution, uh, praying for the purpose behind the pain and um, uh, not just the fruit would come, but that they would see it and that they would endure in the face of it. Uh, Hard to even imagine having to be in that spot, let alone pray for those. But yet we're called to pray. We must pray. They need the prayers of God's people all around the world. Yeah. Anything else? How can we pray for the persecuted church? Yeah, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just staying up to date with the resources that we have. So many, and uh, Jerry had mentioned Voice of the Martyrs is a great resource. And she was saying they have um, uh, daily people you can pray for, update you on different things that are going around in the nations. And uh, just a great opportunity to stay connected to that. Yeah, yeah. So praying specifically for the needs and staying up to date. Anything else you would pray for the persecuted church or how you would go about praying for the persecuted church. I don't know about you, but when I was just digging into the text this week, I mean, the Lord convicted my heart. I mean, when I'm praying for myself, I'm praying for my marriage, I'm praying for my wife, I'm praying for my children, praying for our church, praying for our outreach and the opportunities God gives us, I often neglect the prayers for the persecuted church all around the world. Those who are in the midst of of facing, I mean, the challenges of saying, I'm le- your family, you have nothing if you follow Christ, but he's worth it in the midst of it. Um, uh, just as I was preparing this, I was thinking, just in that time, even because we've got, we got five, three, and an infant, you know, it's uh, the bedtime, uh, story time, but also prayer time to just say, hey, whether well, it's the voice of the martyrs or another country where there's persecution, hey, tonight, kids, we're going to pray for this country. We're going to pray for these missionaries. We're going to pray for this specific thing because they need it. Uh, we're free to worship on Sunday morning. Not everyone's free to even pray in public. And so we need to be praying for them. And so just thinking through that. Secondly, not only heed the warning by praying for the persecuted. Secondly, heed the warning by finding strength in the Lord in times of adversity. And so one of the purposes is not to shake their faith, but to strengthen their faith. And so how is Christ strengthen your faith in times of adversity? When you faced hardship and difficulty, what is that like, practically speaking, when you're in the midst of the storm or you feel the pressures of life and yet God somehow strengthens your faith? How would you describe that?
Oh, yeah. So in the face of adversity, his presence is there, and it's an encouragement. It's a, it strengthens your faith, yeah. Jerry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you see, you just experience the comfort of the, of the Spirit and the reminder of the nature of God who's sovereign. And that's, a, that's powerful. Yeah. Uh, Dennis? Dennis is talking about the moment when you've done everything that you can do in your own human strength and power and that's all you can do and then it's all in your hands now, God. And there's just a a peace of mind, serenity. I think Dennis was saying that just washes over you and it's God's there. I mean, his presence is there. He's sovereign. It's just a a wonderful, wonderful reminder. God, God... God strengthens our faith in, in times of adversity. He, he wants to do that, and that's the advantage of the adversity and the purpose sometimes behind the pain to, to, to grow us, to mature us, to remind us that we are so weak and he is so strong and he is enough for us. You know, something else in heeding the warning is also being encouraged by God's word in those times of adversity because that's what I was talking about. In those times of adversity, may these words be an encouragement to the persecuted disciples or to the persecuted church or to us who may find ourselves persecuted. When you think of God's word, scriptures that have really been an encouragement to you in those times of adversity, uh, any verses that you would say, this is one that has really gotten me through difficult times. Anyone want to share? Yeah, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of the verse, but Paul, uh, Paul, when he's talking about three times he asked for the Lord to take away uh, uh, whatever he was ailing him, and uh, he says, your power is made perfect in my weakness. Yeah. yeah. And any other verse? Yeah, Lord. Yeah. 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 Very encouraging. First Peter one. Yes. Uh, any others? Yeah, Ty. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. John 16, 
Uh, anything else? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, so good. God is sovereign. I mean, yeah. Go ahead, Kevin. What, what, what was it, Kevin? Okay, Exodus 15.2. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How encouraging is that? I mean, we just I mean went through all throughout the scripture and says, man, this is this has been an encouragement to me in those difficult, hard times. I think of those verses even that you memorize as a kid, uh, like uh, Proverbs three five through six. If you grew up in the church, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your path. And, and I still remember, you know, memorizing that as a kid. You know it; it's in your mind. But then you face the adversity and there's something so powerful of God bringing that text to mind and saying, you can trust me. You may not be able to see maybe five feet in front of you, but I'm going to lead you and I'm going to guide you. There's something so incredible when the, when the word of God is encouraging because you see it and the need for it and you said, God, that's why you wanted me to hide it in my heart. What a wonderful thing to be encouraged by God's word. And so he prepares them um, for his departure uh, by means of warning them of the adversity that comes. And, and he, he, we see the reasons why he gives those. But also he prepares them for his departure by means of acknowledging their sorrow. He acknowledges their sorrow. Verse 5 says this, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asked me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, listen, they don't have any reason to be sorrowful if they truly understood what was happening here. They had every reason for their heart to be filled, not with sorrow, but with joy, because what Christ is about to do on the cross, he's about to pay for their sins. He's about to buy their salvation. And three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. And after that, he's going to go to the Father. Why is he going to leave? This is a reason to rejoice because the Holy Spirit's going to come. And we also know this is a reason to rejoice because Jesus, when he departs, he was sent by the Father and he's going to return to the Father. This is a reason to rejoice because Jesus is going back to heaven. (laughs) And as he goes back to heaven, he's going to rule and reign over all things. But in this moment, does Jesus knock them over the head with the word? He acknowledges their sorrow. He meets them where they're at. He understands that later in the text we're going to see, you're not ready for me to reveal even more to you. The Holy Spirit will do that. But he acknowledges their sorrow. He acknowledges the source of their sorrow. Verse 5, but now I go away to him who sent me. I mean, think about this. We talked about last time in chapter 15, Jesus said, um, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. For the past three years, they've experienced the perfect love of Jesus. If you want to know about what perfect love looks like, take a look at how Jesus loves you. They were physically with Jesus for three years. He called them and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And and he didn't just meet with them once a week. He met with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week for three years. How many of you know you really get to know somebody when you spend all day and all night with them? Not only that, you really get to know folks when they find themselves under pressure. Like it's one thing, you you can act one way for so long while, while you meet with people sometimes and then go and do your own thing, but if you're with somebody that often, any married folks in the room, you learn about one another's shortcomings. Jesus didn't have any. And Jesus even when they fell short, loved them through it all, ministered to them, encouraged them, strengthened them, uh, um, 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 prepared them to 
to, 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 for ministry and, and showed them the way. And so Jesus is with these guys for three years and now he drops this bomb on them because they don't really understand everything about his death, his resurrection, and his departure. And their heart is full of sorrow. They are broken over the fact that Jesus is leaving. I mean, it's almost like a, a son saying to a father, why are you leaving me? They feel like they're, they're being orphaned because Jesus is leaving. This is their teacher. This is their master. What are we supposed to do without you, Jesus? They're overwhelmed. That's the source of their sorrow. The expression of their sorrow is Jesus says to them, and you, you don't ask me where I'm going. You have to know something about these disciples, especially even Peter here at this point. I mean, I mean if you're going to say something, say it, Peter. Where are you going? No one even says it because their hearts are so full of sorrow they can't even express these words. And Jesus describes the extent. He acknowledges the extent of it. And then in verse 6, he says, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. There is no joy in this moment. There is just sorrow. Uh, I just want to stay there for a moment in verses 5 to 6 because I want you to know Jesus acknowledges your heart and the sorrow therein. In, in moments when you don't understand what's going on and you can't see past the storm or the, the, the hardship or the difficulty or the adversity, Jesus sees your heart. And he cares for you. He acknowledges the source of it and the expression of it and the extent of it. He knows when your heart is so filled with sorrow that you can't even communicate, you can't even speak. What an awesome God we serve. What a wonderful thing to follow Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. It's not the idea of, okay, I'm supposed to follow Jesus. No, I just walk with him and he walks with me. He knows me. And I know him, and it's a beautiful relationship indeed. So he prepares them by acknowledging their sorrow. If I could give a few takeaways, the first one would be this. Be comforted knowing that God cares for your heart. Be comforted knowing that God cares for your heart. He knows when you feel stressed, worried, anxious, depressed, and he cares for you. I was recently at a funeral uh, last week, and funerals always remind you of the brevity of life. Uh, I, w- I, I do a lot of funerals. I, I, I minister at a lot of funerals. This one, I, I just had the opportunity to just sit down and be there and be present. And it's a wonderful thing just to take in the word of God and be reminded that life is brief, that life is precious, but blessed are those who mourn. This was the text that was quoted. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, for God, God cares for our heart. How's it going? I can't, can't think. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There we go. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what a wonderful thing to know. If I'm mourning, and I'm depressed, and I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious, and I'm worried, God comforts me with his presence, and he's close to me in that moment. And that was just a wonderful encouragement. Even though I didn't know that person so well, as you watch those who do, and those, know, those who do know them, knowing that they're going to be with God and his people forever because that individual knew Jesus, what a comfort that is indeed. And so be comforted knowing that God cares for your heart. Secondly, be comforted knowing that God encourages you with his word, and we had mentioned that earlier. If I could ask this, what are practical ways you have learned to minister to hearts that are full of sorrow. Um, maybe you've had to minister to a friend, maybe a co-worker. Um, how, how do you minister to them or how have you learned to minister to them in, in times when you know their heart's full of sorrow? They can't even talk. They're just depressed. They're overwhelmed. How do you minister to them? It's a tough one. Yeah, Stephanie. Yeah. So just meeting them where they're at, being present with them. And I'm hearing if they're on the ground, go with them. 
if they're outside and uh, they just they just want to be alone, um, but they know just you being present there is an encouragement to them. Be there, and if it means just waiting in the house while they're waiting outside, sometimes they just know, hey, I'm here, and whatever you need, yeah. Oh, yeah, just be there, just be there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so seeing them through it, Marianne's saying that it's not just, you know, you're there for five minutes, ten minutes, but you're sitting through with them in the midst of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I ask this on the other side of it? When your heart is full of sorrow, when you don't really want to talk to anybody and you may even be at the point of depression, how do you want to be ministered to in them? Or what, or what do you need in terms of being ministered to? Because sometimes we want to, isolate and maybe that's the time we need someone the most maybe them not talking to us but them just present how would you share what you need or you've needed in the past when your heart has been so full of sorrow you don't have even words to speak Yeah, so folks who can empathize and who've gone through similar experiences, that's a, that can be an encouragement. Yeah, anyone else? Anybody been there? You know, you're in that moment of, my heart's full of sorrow, you know, it's just tough. Yeah, yeah. That's an encouraging thing to know. God doesn't waste it. Even when we don't understand it, he doesn't waste it. Did I see a hand? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So just hearing people pray out loud for you and uh, be ministered to in that moment is, is really powerful. I mean, from a, from a ministry side of things, it always feels like, hey, we're praying for other people. You know, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for this person, praying for that hardship. But it's so encouraging to be on the other side when your heart is full of sorrow and you understand the blessing it is when someone comes and just says a prayer. Someone just uh, uh, even sings a hymn. Um, I've been in many occasions uh, working with, with, with hospice. Uh, before uh, we moved to Oregon, we were volunteering with a hospice out in Arizona, and we just go into people's rooms and chat with them, and some were not even believers, and we said, have you ever heard the, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul? And they say, sing it, and it's an encouragement to them. It's often an opportunity to, to minister to them, especially when they're in a place of pain, they're, they're bedridden, and they're just like, sing it as well with my soul. It's such an encouragement in a moment like that. I, I think back to, so my dad died when I was 11, and I still remember this. I don't know why this popped into my head, but um, one of the, our, our neighbors, she had, she wasn't even a Christian, but she came over to our house and uh, uh, my father had passed away and he was in an hour away from where we were and she told my mom and stuff, she said, listen, you're not driving. I'm gonna drive you over there. We're gonna, I'm gonna help you take care of all of the next steps you need to take care of. I'm just gonna take over. And she needed that in that moment. We needed that in that moment. 
was a wonderful thing to just say, hey, don't worry about it. We're just going to walk with you through it. And so it's just a wonderful thing to have people like that in your life. And so Jesus, he prepares them for his departure, acknowledging their sorrow. He understands their hearts that are full of sorrow. And he understands that their minds don't fully comprehend nor their hearts understand everything that's going on. But he's, he, he comforts those who mourn. And that should be an encouragement to us. And we can encourage others with that word as well. And then thirdly, lastly, he, encourage, he encourages them with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, as he prepares them for his departure, he promises the, the Holy Spirit as we continue to read in, in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you, to, tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Your heart is full of sorrow right now, but I want you to know this, that when you can fully understand this, let it be full of joy, knowing that you are going to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant. We, we are used to that because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we sometimes take it for granted, but you read all throughout the Old Testament, there were times when the Holy Spirit came upon individuals, but, it, but the Holy Spirit did not indwell individuals. This is a wonderful encouragement to them, and it's an encouragement to us that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Later, he's going to say in Acts, you know, you're going to receive power. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You cannot do what I've called you to do without relying on the power that I've provided you. So don't try it. Don't try to live out the Christian life in your own strength, and your own ability. Rely on the Holy Spirit who indwells you. And this is to your advantage, Jesus tells them. It's to their advantage. Um, For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you, the Holy Spirit is your helper. He is my helper. Uh, needing a helper reminds us that we have a deficiency. That we cannot do it on our own. We need a helper. And if we're going to fulfill the task that God has designed us to fulfill, we must depend on the helper. We must depend on the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 goes on to say, and, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit first to the world? It says here, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. So what is the Holy Spirit's ministry? The Holy Spirit's ministry is to convict those who are unbelievers of their sin. And when they are convicted of their sin, they would see their need for Christ in him crucified and that they would believe in him. That's why he says, he will convict the world of sin of sin because they do not believe in me. Secondly, of righteousness because I go to my Father and see me no more and you will see me no more. And so the Holy Spirit convicts us not just of sin and our need for Christ and to believe in him, but it convicts them the unbeliever of the righteousness of Christ. How do you know Christ is righteous? Because he goes back to the Father. He's in a right standing with him. And then lastly, convicts of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The conviction is that of judgment that all those who reject Christ and reject the, their opportunity to believe in him will experience the same destiny as as the ruler of the world who will also be judged. Now, in one sense, we're reminded that the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of unbelievers by enlightening them to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the God of this age, speaking of Satan, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But notice here in our text where we, where we begin, it doesn't necessarily say that the, that the Holy Spirit will be given to the unbeliever, but the Holy Spirit will be given to the believer. It says back in verse 7, let me take you back there. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to whom? To you. What does that tell you about your ministry and mine to the to the unbelieving world. Through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are to speak the truth to unbelievers about sin 
and their need to trust in Christ and believe in him as their Savior and their Lord. As we have received the Holy Spirit, it is our ministry and responsibility as God enlightens hearts to the truth of the gospel to let folks know about the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus is the sinless Son of God who came from heaven to earth to live for our righteousness because he's going to transfer it to our account and to die for our sin. It is our responsibility to share the truth of the gospel as the Holy Spirit convicts of the truth that sin is a real thing that we all struggle with if you're an unbeliever. That righteousness, you need to be reminded that Christ is righteous, he returns to the Father. And judgment is a reality, not just for the ruler of this world speaking of Satan, but all those who reject Christ and him crucified. This is our responsibility. So the question then presents itself, are we ministering as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so in the lives of unbelievers? It's not enough simply to, to say, hey, God, has a, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Even though that may be part of it, we must talk about sin. We must talk about the righteousness of Christ. We must talk about coming judgment that is ultimately the destiny of all those who reject Christ and Him crucified. And it is our ministry through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to speak truth in love. And so he speaks of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the world, but also in the life of the believer. We continue to read in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but, I, I, but, you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus says there's a lot of things you need to learn still. I'm about to depart from you, but here's the good thing. The Holy Spirit will reveal all truth that you need to know. Um, we have the New Testament. We have the Gospels. We have, we have the book of Acts. We have the epistles. We have the, 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 the revelation. I mean, we've got all this. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit who enlightened the hearts of these apostles who wrote down the inspired word of, of God. And we have it. And we have access to it. And so he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will what? He will guide you into all truth. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? He guides us in the truth. He provides us discernment. He helps us discern what is truth from error, right from wrong. What a blessing to have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to grant us that ability. He will guide you in truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears he will speak and he will tell you the things to come. It tells us here he doesn't speak on the, his own authority for he will not speak that but whatever he hears he will speak. From whom? From the Son and from the Father. And so the Son testifies of the truth of what the Father and the Son reveals. And so... If ever someone should come to you and tell you, oh, I am filled by the Holy Spirit and I have got a word of the Lord for you and that word should contradict the, other, the word of God that we have, that person is not ministering of the Holy Spirit. He's ministering of something else. And so you have the Spirit who testifies of the truth and who only shares what the Father and the Son have already shared. Um, the spirit of truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever, and he will tell the things to come. Verse 14, sorry. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. What is the main ministry of the Holy Spirit? The main ministry of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son, to glorify Jesus Christ. The main ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is not to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ. So if the Holy Spirit is ministering, then Christ is going to be glorified. Christ is going to be exalted. Now, sometimes we find ourselves getting into trouble because you see individuals of different persuasions talking about experiences, you know, Holy Spirit experiences. But the reality of what the Holy Spirit does is it's not about me and my experience. It's about Christ and his exaltation. 
And so when the Holy Spirit speaks, he's not speaking of these experiences. He's speaking of Christ and him crucified. So where Christ is glorified, that's where the ministry of the Holy Spirit is taking place. And so he says here, um, verse 15, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said to you, he will take of mine and declare it and, and declare it to you. And so we're reminded the, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son and speaks only what the Son and the Father have already shared. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through believers. So we see the ministry to the world and the ministry in and through believers as we're convicted of the truth of God in light of it. And so if I could give us just a few takeaways, the first one would be this. When you consider who, who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit accomplishes through the ministry, we're reminded uh, that the invitation of the letter of the Gospel of John is to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you read it, chapter 16, when you hear the way that Jesus is spoken about, how in the world could Jesus not be the Christ? How could in the world could Jesus not be God if the Holy Spirit glorifies him. Jesus is not just a man or a prophet. That would be heresy if the Holy Spirit should glorify a mere man, should glorify a mere prophet. No, Jesus Christ is, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And the Son glorifies him. And the Father, everything the Father has, the Son has, and the Spirit declares it. You can't Speak of Jesus in other, any other way than him being the Christ, the Son of God. And so the invitation of John's gospel is to confess that yourself. It's to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, secondly, as we consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're invited to rely on the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and illumination to the word because the Holy Spirit only convicts us of the truth, and the truth is found in His Word. Now, there was a transitional time in history when the Scriptures were being completed and were being written, but if you want to know if someone is a true prophet of God or a false prophet, consider whether or not the truth lines up with God's Word. And then lastly, if we consider the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we would rely on the Holy Spirit to help us fulfill the task that we have to share the good news of Jesus with everyone that he gives us an opportunity to share it with. And we see the content that we should be sharing, that sin is, a, sin is, is something we, that any unbeliever has in their hearts. We're born into this world in a, in a place of sin. Uh, David said, I was born in my mother's womb with iniquity in my heart. And so we need to admit our, our need for sin, admit that Christ is righteous, and admit the fact that judgment awaits all those who haven't trusted Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And so as we conclude our time together, who is Jesus? In light of chapter 16, is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Son of God? Because if he is, he invites you to believe in him and to receive the life he offers in his name. And we take time to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for these words of encouragement to, your, for, to Jesus' disciples who found themselves in a difficult place to, to be prepared for the departure of Christ who would ascend to the Father. And as they were words of encouragement to them and, and words that prepared them for their ministry, Lord, may these words guide and direct our lives and guide and direct our ministries that you've called us to. We thank you for... a for a help for understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, the third person of the Trinity. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry that the Holy Spirit accomplishes, not just in, in bearing witness to the world and opening our uh, hearts that are blinded to the truth of the gospel, uh, to what the truth of who Jesus is. Um, and Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who works in and through us as believers who convicts us of truth and guides us and directs us in all things. So, Father, we pray that we would leave enabled, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.